Hey, if you have a Bible, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 11, if uh, you are fairly new to church or maybe you're only here occasionally, um, you know, typically on Easter Sunday, we sort of rotate through the four gospel accounts of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this, this morning, we're going to look at this whole conversation a little bit differently because it's just a different kind of Sunday. It's a, it's a different kind of Easter. Uh, we've just been kind of walking through all of it, and so we're going to sit in just a little bit of the tension um, that we've been walking through as a city, and so that's okay. Yesterday, our boys had baseball games in the midst of the rain, and at all of the games, somebody came up to me, you know, just parents, grandparents, friends, and they, the sentiment was the same. It's like, hey, this Easter just feels different. There's something kind of different about it, and we're just going to we're going to sit in that a bit this morning. I don't, I don't know what your heart's been feeling over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, some of you, the, the tragedy at Covenant was like really, really close. You know, we've, we've sat and we've prayed and we've listened and we've talked and we've asked questions. With a lot of you, there were some of you that lost friends and loved ones. There were a lot of you that had friends that lost friends or loved ones. There were some of you that just sat in the, the tears of just evil and heartache and all of the stuff that's been going on in our city. And just to be pretty transparent, the last couple of weeks I found myself just sitting almost like in this undercurrent of, of grief and of frustration and of fear and of longing for justice and all kinds of questions. There's some days when I've been like really aware of what I've been feeling. Maybe that, you know, maybe you've had those days where you wake up and you're like, man, I'm sad or I'm angry. And then there've been other days where I woke up and I honestly didn't know exactly what I was feeling. In fact, on Thursday, I talked to my, my good friend, Corey, who's one of our elders. And I said, I think I'm just feeling kind of numb. It's like, I'm feeling everything at once. I can't pinpoint a feeling. And I'm not sure where you've found yourself in the mix uh, of that. You know, some of you have probably felt guilty that you haven't felt a lot. It's okay too, it's just been a strange couple of weeks. I remember Wednesday, a week and a half ago, two days after the shooting, I was sitting there praying with a young adult from our church and she was just devastated and trying to make sense of everything that she was feeling and in the middle of us talking and praying, we're sitting over the church office, she said, I feel sort of weird that I'm as sad as I am. She said, I don't have any kids, I don't have, you know, she's kind of going down the list of things that she thought she should have in order to feel what she was feeling. And as we were praying together, I just, I had this image, I don't know if you ever have these moments where you'll be talking with God and he'll put a thought in your mind or a picture in your mind that may seem strange to you, but this is one of the ways that God sometimes seems to communicate with me. He'll, he'll give me a story or a picture or a metaphor to help me make sense of something that I don't know how to make sense of. And so I'm sitting there praying with this young woman from our church and this two-fold image pops in my mind. And the first image is this image of the human heart, but the, the human heart was represented by the ocean floor, which I know sounds sort of strange. But I saw the, the ocean floor, and on the bottom of the ocean floor, there was this treasure, and there was all of this shipwrecks and brokenness and discarded trash. There was good stuff, and there was hard stuff. There was beauty, and there was brokenness. But all of it was laying there unseen underneath the, the top of the water. And as I'm praying with this young woman, I see this image of the human heart as 
the floor of the ocean, and it was like the Holy Spirit just said very gently, hey Dave, this is how most of our hearts function in an ordinary day. Underneath the surface of your life, there is sorrow, and there is joy, there's treasure, and there's tragedy, there's brokenness and beauty, there's all of it. And most days, you just skip across the top of the surface of your heart like a speedboat on the water, no idea what's beneath it. And then the next image that came as I was praying with this young woman was the image of the heart as an ocean floor and this tsunami comes rolling in. And if you've ever seen a tsunami on the news, the way that it works is it comes from the deep a lot of times quickly and unexpectedly and the water comes in and it devastates the shoreline and it does all of this destruction on the shore and then right after it hits the shore, it recedes back out just as quickly as it came and it brings the water level out and all of that stuff that used to be covered up is all of a sudden exposed. And, and there's this moment as I was praying with this young woman where the Lord is just saying, hey, this is what's been happening collectively in our city is this tsunami of tragedy has just kind of rolled in and it has just devastated the shorelines of our hearts. It's caused all of this wreckage and now the water has pulled out quickly and all of the things that have been in our hearts all along suddenly are just there to be seen. Fears, joys, sorrows, tragedies, triumphs, longings, all of this and collectively our city has just been going, okay, what do we do? in the midst of it. And so there I was sitting with this young woman. She's going, I don't know how to make sense of everything that I'm feeling because it didn't hit me directly. And I go, yeah, but your heart is being laid bare before the Lord and all of your fears as a human, all of your places of sadness, all of your questions about God, all of your longings for justice, they're showing up and you just can't ignore them anymore. And the question that, that I've been sitting with in the midst of this season that has impacted some of us very directly and some of us indirectly is does the resurrection of Jesus and all of the claims that he makes in light of his resurrection actually offer real hope for real people in the midst of real tragedy? And if it does, how does that actually work? How do the claims that a a dead guy 2,000 years ago rose from death by the power of God never to die again, that he'll come back in the clouds one day, set his feet on earth, raise the living and the dead, not just spiritually, but give you new bodies to live in a new heaven and a new earth. How does that reality, if it's true, how does that actually impact you right now in the midst of the tragedy that we're going through? Full, just kind of all my cards on the table, full disclosure, uh, when I'm talking about the resurrection, I'm not talking about just a, a spiritual idea or a thought or some religious myth that we use to comfort our hearts. I believe like historically, Christ literally physically got out of the tomb and that he will one day come again and that he will raise every follower of Jesus to life, giving you a new body and you will live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And you can, yeah. And you can, if you wanna wrestle with some of the evidence of that and why I, I'm willing to stake my whole life on why I think that actually happened, you can go back and listen to old podcasts and stuff that we've shared over the years. I'm not gonna get into that uh, too much this morning, um, but, but I believe it's real. And I wanna wrestle with, okay, if it's real, how does it minister to us in the face of tragedy? And this is, this is what I, I wanna look at in John chapter 11 this morning. This is a story not about Jesus' resurrection, but about the way that 
the resurrection reality is going to break in to every person's life who claims to know, love, and follow Jesus. And it's going to happen in the life of one of his friends, a guy named Lazarus. And uh, I'll just warn you, this is a long story that we're going to read through. You know, we're going to break all of the rules of Easter. On Easter, you're supposed to, to keep it short and simple. So we're going to break that rule. And, uh, and rule number two is you're supposed to just kind of read a short little neat passage. And um, we're going to break that rule as well. It's a long passage. Hope you brought a sleeping bag. Um, hang around for a bit. Um, I'll, I just want to read through the whole story. And then I'm just going to come back and I just want to very quickly just make a couple of observations. So this is the word of God out of John chapter 11, starting in verse one. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick and he is from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This is Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick. She was the same woman who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That's a strange little aside there if you don't know the story, but in Luke chapter seven, Mary her life was a mess. She encountered the goodness and the mercy of Jesus. She crashed a dinner party with a bunch of distinguished people. She broke open a bottle of expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. She literally dried his feet with her hair, just going, hey, I'm not worthy of you. And Christ transformed her life. And then in the aftermath of that, Jesus becomes really close friends with Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And any time he was in their area uh, of the little region that he did his life and ministry, he'd stop at their house and he'd eat a meal and he'd hang out. They had this deep friendship. Verse three. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus. They said, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is a confusing verse. So we're gonna come back and deal with it. He loved them. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. He loved them, and then he fails to move towards what they had asked him to move toward in the moment. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jewish people there, they tried to stone you, and yet you wanna go back. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, I love this. They said, Lord, if he's asleep, he's gonna get better. <laughs> Jesus was speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And on his arrival, Jesus, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever, whatever you ask. And so Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last days. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And, we're, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. 
And after she had said this, she went back and she called her sister Martha aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jewish people who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus wept. Then the Jews saw, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Taking away the stone, he said, but Lord, he said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor and he has been there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes, let him go. This is the word of the Lord out of John chapter 11. Crazy story, Jesus, his dear friends, close friends, experience this moment where the tsunami of tragedy shows up, it devastates the shoreline of their hearts. They didn't see it coming. They plead with Jesus to stop it from coming. Jesus does not show up in the moment. They don't know what to do with it. So Jesus shows up seemingly pretty late to the tragedy and they have some questions about where Christ was in the midst of all of it. And they go, what, what are you doing? Where were you? And I, I just wanna make a, a couple of observations. So many things we could wrestle with this morning, but if if you're the type of person that likes to take notes, I just wanna just kinda observe three things together and then just ask this, so what do we do with this question? And the first observation is this, I just want you to notice that in the, in the wake of tragedy, Jesus was not scared to engage all of the really hard questions. Jesus wasn't scared to engage the really hard questions. He, he shows up at the scene of the tragedy. And he doesn't stay at a distance. He doesn't isolate himself from the heartbroken or from those that are struggling. He, he literally, he seeks them out. He, he goes right to them. And I want you to notice just that both of the sisters ask the same question. They ask the question in a little different way, but they're wrestling with the same question, both Mary and Martha. They show up in verse 21 and Martha goes, hey, Jesus, if only you would have been here. If only you would have shown up. You weren't here in the moment. You weren't even here for our mourning. You didn't even make it to the funeral. He's been in the tomb for four days. Where were you? Martha shows up and she falls on her feet, just can barely get it out of her, just weeping. She goes, she goes Jesus, if only you would have been here. Our brother wouldn't have died. They, they understood that he had the power to stop the tragedy and their hearts were wrestling with why in his goodness he failed to do so. 
Don't you notice Jesus isn't scared of the hard questions. Last night, walking back from a soccer game with my boys, just, it felt like it came out of nowhere. One of my sons, I mean, we're literally, we're just talking about Nashville SC and why soccer can end in a tie and how none of us understand that and <laughs> the injustice. <laughs> but we're walking back in the midst of it and just one of my sons, it just, it fell out of the blue. He goes, he goes, dad, how come God didn't make her car break down? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, the shooter, he's like, why didn't God break her car down? or break the gun, or change your heart. And it's, it's just the cry of an honest human heart. It goes, where were you? What was going on? If you'd been here, right? It's just the, the struggle. It's the cry of humanity. And I'm just telling you, sometimes it feels scary to get that honest with God. Sometimes it feels sacrilegious. But the scriptures are littered with the friends of God asking these kinds of questions. I'm just telling you, Jesus, his heart is tender and his skin is tough. He can handle the honest questions. And I just wanna encourage you, I'm just telling you, if you haven't let your heart get that honest, let your heart get that honest. Because honesty is the front door to intimacy. In the moment we refuse to be honest, we shut ourselves off from the intimacy that is available to us. And these sisters, dear friends of Jesus, are going, hey, Jesus, where were you? If only you would have been here, you would have shown up. You could have stopped this. Why didn't you stop this? Where were you? And I want you to notice that Jesus shows up, and this is one of the frustrating aspects of Christian discipleship, is that so often the cry of our human heart is why? And sometimes the Bible is painfully silent to that question. We ask why, and Jesus shows up and he says, let me just answer with the who. Here's who I am in the midst of this. And for Martha, he's gonna minister with truth. With Mary, he's gonna minister with tears. And in all of it, I want you to notice, he just comes close to the hard questions. I just wanna encourage you, man, if you've been wrestling with hard questions in the last two weeks, as the tsunami of grief has hit you directly or indirectly, as the water level has been ripped out, as stuff has been exposed, fear, longings, desires, questions, faith, all of it as it's been exposed, man, if you could just resist the urge to try to cover that back up quickly and to just sit with the hard questions in the presence of the Lord. I just want you to notice, he's not scared of the questions. Second thing that grips me about this moment is not, does, not only does Jesus just engage the hard questions, but, but secondly, he enters all the way into the pain. He enters all the way into the pain. And I, I just wanna say this, I, I don't think humanity, I don't think we know what to do with, with someone who was not just half God, half man, part God, part man. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was fully God, fully man. You know, we don't know how to make sense of that. And that in one being, there could be the fullness of divinity and at the same time, the frailty of humanity. That all the power of the cosmos was in this guy. And yet the tenderness of a human was in this guy. And yet you see this, he, he comes and he deals with the questions, but not at a distance. He enters into the pain. Look at verse 35. It says that Jesus sees what's going on and he weeps. 
In the original language, this is not just like a gentle cry. It's not a controllable cry. It's not just a tear down the cheek. It's an uncontrollable sobbing, like can't keep myself together kind of cry. That's what's being described here. Jesus sees the grief and he's crying. And then in verse 38, look at verse 38 with me. I hate the way this is translated in the English language. It says, Jesus once more deeply moved. All of the English translators, I believe they miss this here. And I believe they miss it because they're so blinded by how uncomfortable we are as human beings with Jesus' vulnerability. But this phrase was deeply moved. It was, it was literally, it should be, he was like unhinged in his anger. He was furious. It was a, a phrase that was used to describe a war horse, the sound that he would make before he went into battle. Just like, and what you see here is Jesus in both grief and anger is just like his humanity is just exploding out of his heart when he sees the wreckage of humanity that's been caused by evil and pain and suffering and death. What you get in John chapter 11 is not a composed God who has it all together the way, it's like we would not have made this God up. But what you're getting is a real God who loves his creation, who's entering into their pain, who's, who's answering their question. I don't know if you ever noticed this. Have you ever seen how closely grief and anger go hand in hand? Sadness and rage, they're dancing partners in the human heart. And sometimes my inability to tell where my sadness and my anger end or begin is, is profound to me. About a week ago, my son Jack, he's 10 years old, he said, hey dad, are you, are you mad about something? I said, I said, why do you say that? Or he said, he said, no, he said, are you sad about something? I said, why do you say that? He said, because you've been sort of short with us, you've been a little on edge the last few days and I've noticed a lot of times when you're kind of irritable, it's because you're actually sad. And I went, man, out of the mouth of babes, the Lord can speak. How'd you notice that? But he's seen this pattern in my life that sometimes when I'm sad, it manifests as anger, or sometimes when I'm angry, it manifests as grief. And what you see here in the person of Jesus is he's standing at the intersection of those two realities, and it's just coming out of him at the tomb. I don't know if you've ever grieved like this before, where you've been so caught off guard by the tsunami of tragedy, where it's just like that primal human scream just comes out of you. I remember being on the phone two Mondays ago, Monday afternoon, right after the shooting, and we do weird things in moments of grief, don't we? Things that don't even make sense. Everything was going down, and I was, I was talking to people that we know that are connected and that are part of, we're trying to figure out if everybody's okay, and, and for some reason, I don't even understand why I did it, I literally just got in my Jeep, and I drove to the sports store to buy a baseball bat for one of my kids. Like, I don't even know why I did that. I'm just like walking through this store sort of numb by what's happening. And I'm in the middle of the store like looking at, at baseball bats and I get this phone call from my dear friend who just found out one of their family friend's son was one of the, one, one of the ones that was killed in the shooting. I'll never forget answering the phone. And it wasn't a cry and it wasn't a whimper and it was like this scream of humanity just coming out. And it's the cry of the human heart that's come face to face with evil and tragedy and grief that has not stayed at a distance, but it's come to our front door. 
And Jesus enters into it. He's in that place. The primal scream of his heart is coming out. It's the longing of, of what's going on. And I want you to hear this. Your tears and your anger are not you protesting against God. Your tears and your anger are you joining with God in protest against evil and sadness and brokenness and wickedness. And for us to understand that Christ is not okay with the world as it is. And it says that when they saw him this way, some of the people were touched by his love and they go, wow, look at how much he loved Lazarus. And it says that some of them were offended with cynicism because they go, isn't this the guy that opened the eyes of the blind? Couldn't he have done something here? And Jesus shows up, he engages the hard question. Jesus enters all the way into the pain. And then Jesus, in his kindness, he begins to challenge our perspective on how we move forward. I love this because he's not just a God that wrestles with the tough stuff and enters into the sadness. He has answers. He has something to offer. And all throughout the story, he's gonna, he's gonna challenge our perspective as humans in some pretty profound ways, and we don't have time to, to dig into all of it. I don't know how many of you were here two weeks ago, the day before the shooting, we were in this very room, preaching through Philippians, talking about the mystery of suffering. Do you all remember that? And how bizarre, how surreal that the Spirit of God led us into that conversation the day before all of this happened. And you can go back and listen to that if you want, because it wasn't spoken in response to our pain. I believe the Spirit of God was ministering to us to prepare us for it. But Jesus, he has this way of showing up and challenging our perspective in the midst of tragedy. And all throughout this, and there's so many things we can look at, I'll just give you a couple of them. He, he challenges some of our assumptions that God is most glorified in our strength as opposed to being glorified in our weakness. You know, back at the beginning of this moment, right after they received news of Lazarus, Jesus is gonna say, hey, listen, this story's gonna end in glory. This story's gonna end in God getting glory. Yesterday at the ball fields, I was talking with a man who's been working with the Covenant School and they're trying to figure out how to reopen and all the things that they're going through. And he said, I was so touched as I was sitting down with some of the leaders of the school, the, the thing that they keep saying and keep praying is that we just want God to get glory in this. I go, what a prayer. And man, when you're standing at the, the grave, it is, it is tough to make sense of it. But Jesus goes, this isn't gonna rob, this isn't gonna rob the glory. He challenges our perspective on glory. He, he challenges our perspective on love. Verse five and six, I mean, he, he goes, hey, this is the guy that I love, and because I love him, I'm gonna stay at a distance for a few days. Those two things don't seem to equate in our world. God, how do we make sense of that? And Jesus is gonna challenge our understanding. He's gonna, hey, your, your understanding of love, your understanding of divine love, your understanding of how love always responds, it's, it, it, it's, it's you only see it in part. Challenges our understanding of love. Challenges our understanding of glory. He challenges our perspective on death. 
And this is the tension that we sit in on Easter Sunday. Jesus looks at Martha and he looks at Mary and he goes, hey, this, this feels final. This feels really, really permanent. But in this story, Jesus is gonna go, hey, hey, death is not everything that you think it is. In fact, he, he rebrands it. He goes, he goes, he's just taking a long nap. He's just taking a long nap. And the disciples are so confused by that. And Jesus is gonna go, what feels like the period at the end of the sentence on the last page of the last chapter of your book, he goes, he goes, it's not that, it's, it's different. And there's another thing that's unfolding because of what was getting ready to happen on the cross on that first Easter Sunday, Sunday morning. Jesus goes, this is not everything that you think it is. He goes, one day I'm gonna return and I'm gonna make all things right and I'm gonna raise everybody who believes in me back to life to live forever and ever and ever and ever and then and only then will you understand what this is. He challenges our perspective on death. One of my friends is a pastor here in the city and his church hosted three of the funerals of the six victims over the last week. And I said, man, what, what in the world are you saying to families in the midst of everything that you're going through? And I don't know that I'll ever forget this. This is so simple. He said, every family member, I looked them in the eyes and he says, he says I say the name of the loved one that they lost and I say they are better off than they have ever been but you are not. And that's the tension we must live in. They're better off than they've ever been. They're in the arms of Christ. They are resting. They'll be raised to life. And one day you will join them in glory and they are better off than you have ever been. But I understand that you are not right now. And we're just gonna sit in that tension. And Jesus, he, he reminds us that our feelings about death are real but our feelings about death are not always true. Does that make sense? That you can have a feeling that is real, but sometimes what feels real doesn't catch all the way up with what is true. And he looks and he goes, hey, your brother is gonna rise again. Your brother's gonna rise again. And you're gonna rise again. And this story is going to unfold in ways you can never imagine. See, the, the promise of Easter, I think sometimes in our modern world gets watered down a bit and we begin to think that Easter is just, it's, it's a week of hope and all of, all of your dead dreams can have resurrection life and you will make it in the music business by the help of God and all, all of these things. Like there's this sometimes simple, like it gets watered down. I, I just want you to hear this, the, the claim of Easter is not that all of your tears, pain, tragedy in this life cease. The promise of Easter is that one day when the human story comes to a dramatic conclusion in the return of Christ Jesus the King, 
that he will speak and just like Lazarus came bursting out of the tomb, you will come out of the grave. New body, new, new life, new opportunity to live and reign and rule and dwell with him forever. And one of my favorite scenes in the scripture is out of Revelation 21 where it says there is this line in front of King Jesus, people standing in front of Jesus and he is literally one by one wiping away every single tear. And I want you to notice this, the promise of Easter is not that you won't cry now. It's that one day you will see him face to face and he will wipe away every single tear. He won't outsource it to angels or to prophets or to other messengers. You will feel his rugged, nail-scarred hands wiping the tears off of your eyes. And this morning I was just thinking about the pastor of Covenant whose daughter was lost in the shooting. And I was just picturing his family standing in line in front of Jesus one day full of questions, full of all of the stuff, and just them making their way up to Christ and just one by one, him wiping their tears, him restoring their lives, then dwelling forever and ever and ever in a place with, with no guns, no violence, no evil, no wickedness, no pain, fully whole, fully alive. And Jesus looks at the sisters and he goes, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because believing in this is what opens the portal of the human heart where the tsunami has laid it bare and left the tragedy. Belief is what opens the heart for the tide of mercy and grace and hope to start coming in again. All throughout the story, that one word over and over and over, belief, belief, belief. Do you believe, do you believe? keeps coming up, and this is how I wanna land the plane this morning. I asked the question, how does the real resurrection give real hope to real people in the face of real tragedy? I think Jesus would sum it up in this story through the word belief. He goes, here's how it happens. He goes, you believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. You believe in me. And your heart opens up and the water level of hope begins to rise and you begin to think differently and act differently and love differently and you're not dominated by fear even though you still feel it. You're not dominated by grief even though you still feel it. You rise again because you know you will rise again by the power of God. Because you believe. Like in our Western minds, we think of belief as this intellectual assertion towards some idea and that's part of it. But there's so much more in the original language. This word believe literally just means to trust something or someone with the entirety of who you are. To put all of your eggs in that basket, to put all of your weight on that person. Jesus isn't going, hey, do you guys intellectually believe that one day I could overturn death and you'll come back? He's going, no, right now is every waking thought, longing of your heart, resting upon the shoulders of this truth. And I think in a place like Nashville, Tennessee, guys, it's just so easy to live with cultural Easter, cultural Christianity. And Jesus is not asking if your parents believe in the empty tomb. He's not asking if your friend next to you believes in the empty tomb. He's not asking if you know the details of the story. He's saying, hey, have you cast the entirety of your hope in your life on the fact that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of humanity, that he was dead for three days, that he rose by, by the power of God and he'll never die again? I think about the story of 
Charles Blondin. He, he, was, he was a French acrobat, trapeze, trapeze artist in 1859. He decided he wanted to cross Niagara Falls, and this was before all of the technology of our day. It's crazy for people that do these sort of things now, but Charles Blondin, he didn't have a, a thick cable and something to, to you know, connect him into the rope. He had a two-inch hip, hemp rope, and he and his manager strung it across Niagara Falls together. They tied this rope up. And 25,000 people showed up on the shore of Niagara Falls to, to watch this 34-year-old French trapeze artist make his way across this two-inch rope over Niagara Falls. So he walks across it, everybody cheers. He walks across it backwards, everybody cheers. He takes a wheelbarrow across it, everybody cheers. He takes one of those old-school cameras, not an iPhone, but you know, like one of those old-school cameras, huge box on a tripod out in the middle, he takes a picture. And then he gets to the other side and he said, how many of you think that I could walk across the rope with with somebody on my back, and everybody's like raising their hands, and they start taking bets on, and he said, who wants to volunteer? <laughs> Spoiler alert, nobody was interested in doing that. 25,000 20, people believed that he could do it, but none of them actually believed he could do it, except for one man, his manager. And his manager climbed on his back, and he walked across the rope, And I just think we live in this interesting place in a city like Nashville, Tennessee, where every one of us can think because we are standing on the side of the shore cheering, you can do it, you can do it, because we know the details of Easter, we think we believe it, but Jesus, in the wake of tragedy, he looks us in the eyes and he goes, will you get on my back? Will you let me carry the weight of every sin, of every choice, of every fear, of every desire? Would you entrust it to me? And will you believe that one day you will rise again? Because if you do, you will live in a new way. And so that's, that's what we're leaning into this morning. With all of our questions, with all of our sadness, with all of our longings, we believe that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And so I just invite you to stand with me. We're going to receive communion. And I'll give you instructions on that. It's on the tables all around the room. There are some of you this morning, you are in grief right now. You have questions. You have sadness. We have men and women at the Respond Banner. We would love, if you just need prayers, if you don't know what to do with all that we've talked about, we'd love to pray with you this morning. We have communion on tables all around the room. And the way that we, we receive communion at Ethos is we take the bread and we take the cup, we bring it back to our seats, and we pray with the people that are next to us. And then on your own, you take the cup and you take the bread and you spend time in prayer. And we're going to end with one song together as, as we wrap up. But I just invite you to just close your eyes and I'm just gonna speak a phrase, a phrase or two over us and I just invite you to just repeat this out loud after me and then I'll pray over us as we, as we go to the table. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He, is risen he is risen indeed. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He, is risen he is risen indeed. One day, One day. Jesus will raise All those who believe in him him. to life again. again. Christ is risen. risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. Father, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Spirit. I love you. And Lord, I thank you for the way that you enter into these moments and these spaces. Lord, as we come to the bread, as we come to the cup, as we reflect on the way that your life 
Your life was defined at the intersection of tragedy and hope on the cross and in the empty tomb. God, this morning as we receive the bread and as we receive the cup, as we're reminded that you are a God of suffering, that you're a God of triumph, and that God, we, we do grieve, but we grieve differently. We do grieve, but we grieve differently because we know that Sunday has come. And that one day, every tear will be wiped away as we stand in your presence forever and ever. Lord, would you, just, would you just grab any area of our heart that is not walking in belief? Lord, would you bring it to the surface? And God, would you yourself, with the tenderness of your mercy, help us to believe, help our unbelief. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.